Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. So great to see so many of you and to be able to worship with you on the Lord's Day as it always is. Well, we will be in God's Word today, so you need your own Bible. I hope you brought your own. We'll be in Genesis 13 if you want to begin by turning there now. Genesis 13 is we have a long but glorious chapter before us. 18 verses in Genesis 13. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of our Lord. Let's attend to it and pray that God would use it to make us more like him. Genesis 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with them into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you would take the left hand, then I will take the right. If you take the right hand, then I will take the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners, Against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also could be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your word reminds us 
to not love this world. Nor the things in this world, nor the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Because they are not from you, Father. And they are passing away. We acknowledge, Father, in our hearts, in our flesh, we still long for the things of this world. We battle the struggle to walk away from you, our living God, who has done nothing but good to us. So we pray, Father, that you would help us. Help us live by faith and not by sight. Help us, Lord, to trust you so that by the end of this time in your word together, we would love you more and love this world less. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I'm sure we can all remember what it was like when we were kids, and there was one thing, one thing that we were really, really good at, and that's making up rules, right? Making up rules. Kids, you probably don't even realize that you do this as often as you do. But you do this all the time. You have rules for everything, don't you? Like the 10-second rule. Anybody else do the 10-second rule when they were a kid? All right, food falls on the ground, you have to pick it up and eat it before 10 seconds or it's, it's gone bad. Or shotgun, you have to call shotgun to get that front seat in the car, the envied front seat. I don't know if anybody else did this, but anybody do nose goes? No one knows what I'm talking about. Perfect. All right. Not an illustration, but nose goes. If you like touch your nose, the last person did whatever nobody wanted to do. I'm sure if you didn't have nose goes, you probably had another silly rule that you obeyed. Right? Because kids, we like to make up rules. Sometimes they can be silly. Sometimes they can almost literally keep the peace in our home. If you've ever had to share a room with a sibling, no doubt you've had some rules like, this half is mine. Do not cross this half of the room. I believe my mom actually, they taped down a line in their room to separate the rooms into halves. And anything that fell on that half is just mine forever now. We have those kinds of rules, don't we? Or if you're the big sibling, the older brother or sister, I'm sure, if you love to play with blocks or Legos or magnetiles and you're building your creation and you can see your little brother and sister just inching closer, closer to just destroy it. Right? And you know, you tell them, no, you cannot destroy this until I'm done. Until it's this high at least, then you can go in and just blast it away. We make these kinds of rules, don't we? All kinds of rules. And one of my favorite rules from when I was a kid is the do-over rule. The do-over rule. Remember this rule? When I was growing up, we played a lot of things outside. Sometimes even in the street, we played hockey and baseball. And, and when something would happen and then a car would come by and you didn't want to take your life into your own hands, you would just step aside. You would miss the ball or whatever, and you let the car go, right? And then you just call a do-over. Everybody knew what you were talking about. Everybody agreed with it. Most people kind of accepted it, and everybody liked it. We loved do-overs. I still love do-overs, by the way. I actually encourage adults in your relationship to practice do-overs. When something comes out that you know was terrible, just think, you know what? That did not come out like I want. Do-over. Let me try that again. Let me take that back and try to say what I really meant. Now, sadly, most of us are not as charitable or as simple as children anymore. And sometimes we have a hard time accepting these do-overs from people even that we love. But that can all change when we realize that God is the one who invented the do-over. He's the God of the second chance. 
Not just the second chance, but the third chance, the fourth chance, the hundredth chance. God doesn't just forgive because he's stuck with us or stuck with these righteous laws that he made so long ago and he's just resenting the fact that he has to keep them. No, God loves to forgive. He loves to redeem. He delights in repentance and restoring even his wayward children. Why? Because he's gloriously good and gracious and merciful. The Bible tells us that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we see this loud and clear in this chapter this morning with the life of Abram. You may not have noticed, but in this passage, Abram gets a massive do-over. You might remember from last week when Jason preached that in chapter 12, Abram failed miserably in Egypt. After receiving these incredible promises from God in chapter 12, his faith was immediately tested with famine. And he left the promised land. He went to the land of Egypt to provide for his family. And sadly, when he was in Egypt, he lost sight of the promises of God. He feared his life would be taken because his wife was so beautiful. And so he took matters into his own hands. He resorted to sinful means to get what he wanted, to provide for himself. And he lied to Pharaoh about his wife being a sister. So Pharaoh took Sarai as his own wife, and Abraham lost her. It's just incredible to think that God just made these promises with Abram. And already they're coming unraveled, it seems, at least if you look at it by sight. But God graciously intervenes. He saves Abram and brings Sarai out of Pharaoh's household. He afflicts Pharaoh's home with the plague and shows Pharaoh what really happened. Pharaoh actually rebukes Abram, gives back his wife, and then kicks him out of Egypt. And now in this chapter, Abram returns to the promised land with his head hanging low. He failed the test of faith. He doubted God's word. He put himself before his wife and lost sight of the promises of God. But the God of grace is going to give him another chance, a do-over. And in chapter 13, we get to see Abram repent. And that's what we see. This chapter breaks down really nice into three parts. First, we see Abram's repentance in verses 1 through 4. Then we see Abram's test, another test, from verses 5 through 13. That's really the the meat of the passage. And then the third thing is Abram's hope in verses 14 to 18. You know the really great news? Abram learned his lesson. Abram learned from his failure. And this time, he lives by faith and not by sight. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And I believe we are exhorted, we're encouraged to live like Abram here. He is our example, but he's also a shadow pointing forward to Christ who also lived by faith and not by sight. I pray that we would see that in this passage. So let's look at verse 1 as we see Abram's repentance. Abram's repentance. So Abram went up from Egypt. Now, you may not realize how good of news those words are. This image of going up is great news in this dialogue. Because, see, in the Bible, Egypt kind of becomes this place where God's people go instead of going to God. Or where God's people want to go instead of going to God. They might go down to Egypt, 
for famine or for persecution. But it seems like every time they go down into Egypt, they go down into idolatry and sin and slavery, even death. And the sad reality is, even once they leave Egypt, they want to go back to this death and sin. But Abram here is going up. Up from Egypt, symbolically here, walking away from the world and the things of this world, walking towards God, leaving death behind him and choosing life. And really, that's the beginning of repentance, isn't it? Leaving this world in our dust, leaving the things this world has to offer and turning our gaze towards God and towards Christ. So Abram went up from Egypt, verse 1. He and his wife and all that he had, And Lot, that's his nephew, remember, with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and in gold. Let's stop there for a second. Where do these riches come from, from Abram? Now in all likelihood, he was probably pretty well off when he left his home in Ur. He might have left a pretty wealthy man in some ways, but we know that he was just blessed tremendously with a ton of riches. Why? Because he lied to Pharaoh. Remember last chapter in Genesis 12, Pharaoh was treating Abraham really well, giving him sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys, even camels, which were like the Mercedes Benz of that day, right? The rich man's form of travel. Why was Pharaoh doing all this? He wanted to get on good terms with Abram so he could make Sarai his wife. And that's what he did. He took her for himself. Now in this way, By the sovereign hand of God, even through this ill-gotten gain, Abram plundered the Egyptians. He took all these riches from them. And this is really a preview of what God's people will do in the Exodus. After all those plagues and they leave Egypt, they come out with incredible riches. But we should also see, even despite Abram's sin, this is an act of God's incredible grace to Abram. An incredibly gracious provision And we see that here in a very interesting way. There's a unique play on words here with that word rich in verse 2. In fact, turn back to chapter 12, verse 10 with me for a second. Genesis 12, 10, just one page back. It says this. Now there was famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. And listen, for the famine was severe in the land. See that word severe? That's the Hebrew word kaved. It does mean severe, but it could mean heavy or great. So Moses is saying the famine is severe. It's heavy. It's great. Now look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 2. Moses uses the same word again for riches. He says, now Abram was very kaved. That's the word in Hebrew, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. His wealth is now heavy and severe and great. Just stop and think about the kindness and grace, and faithfulness of God here. Even though Abram doubted, failed miserably, acted like a fool in Egypt, God turned his severe famine into severe blessings, into severe riches. He was lacking, and now he has more than he can possibly need. This shows us God's promises will always come true. God will still be faithful even despite of our unfaithfulness. And really, it's this kindness right here that we see driving Abram's repentance. 
It's like Romans 2, verse 4. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Think about it. It's not the consequences that are fueling Abram's repentance. Things could have been a lot worse. He's not crawling back to the promised land because he lost everything. He could have lost his wife. He could have lost his family, all of his possessions. He could return home with nothing. And by God's grace, he is more than he started with. By God's grace, he is better off financially than he ever has been. Now, that may be the case. But spiritually, his sin still weighs heavy on his soul. And these riches, this financial blessing is leading him back to the God that blesses him, the God of grace, the God of second chances to restore him, to redeem him. Verse 3. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at first. Talk about coming full circle This is a a huge do-over. He comes back and he pitches his tent in the same place that God made the promises with him. He comes back to the same altar he built to offer himself to the Lord. That's what he does. Look at the end of the verse. And Abram called upon the name of the Lord, returning to the place where he confessed his sin the first time, to confess his sin again, to put his life on the altar as a living sacrifice because he's living by faith and not by sight. That's what Abram's doing here. I wonder if the Apostle John had this scene in mind when he was rebuking the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. Listen to the words that John says in Revelation 2.4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Do the works you did at first. Don't you see Abraham doing that? Returning to the place where he confessed his sin and repented and trust the Lord. Returning to this place in repentance. Now, I'm not sure where each of you are spiritually this morning. I know what's going on in your life, and I know many of you are weighed down with shame, guilt, with regret, maybe even deep discouragement from the time you sinned recently or just this ongoing, recurring sin that for some reason you can't seem to overcome. It just always seems to be a battle. And you know what? I know the devil is whispering to you, lying to you, trying to convince you and myself that God is just like us. God has run out of patience. He's run out of grace. That last sin you just did was one sin too many. You have now out-sinned the grace of God. I know we think this way because we find ourselves thinking, maybe even saying out loud, look, if I was God... I wouldn't give me a second chance. I was God. I wouldn't forgive someone like me. Are you kidding? Someone that would put their life on the altar to turn around again and and take it right off and then offer it to the very next idol that passes by? I'm so inclined to do that on a daily basis. There's no way God would take me back. There's no way I could do what Abram did here. God wouldn't accept me. He wouldn't forgive me. He would just slam the door in my face. Brothers and sisters, do not believe these lies. They are from the pit of hell. 
and send them back. Abram's God, our God, is astoundingly gracious. We know this because he didn't even wait for us to come to him. He sent his son even while we were sinners. Jesus came to live and die and raise from the dead in our place. He offered his life on the altar as the perfect living sacrifice that we failed to give. So that because of his sacrifice, when we call upon the name of the Lord, our sins can be washed away. We can be forgiven. We can be restored. We can be accepted into the very household of God. Listen to Isaiah 55 and the way it describes repentance. It's just beautiful. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Why? For our God will abundantly pardon. Brothers and sisters, our God is a God of restoration and redemption, and grace. If you've fallen like Abraham, or Abram here, call upon the name of Jesus this morning, remembering that our God will abundantly pardon because our Lord has laid down his life for us. We've seen Abram's repentance, but it so often is the case. As soon as we repent, as soon as we offer ourselves to the Lord, it's followed up by a test, isn't it? A trial, and that's what we see again in Abram's life. We see Abram's test in verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife, quarreling. There was conflict. Where? Between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Oh, I'm sure we can all relate to this. Parents, there's just one too many kids sharing a room. Everything becomes a battle. Everything becomes a struggle. Or have you ever gone on vacation with family in close living quarters where no one seems to be able to make up their mind and you should be having such a great time, but it's just filled with conflict and struggle at times. This is what happens when you get sinful people in small spaces. That's the essence of reality TV in a way, isn't it? In so many ways. And they couldn't just spread out. There were neighbors. Look at the end of verse 7. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So it wasn't just that they were crowded together. They were fighting over land rights and water rights and grazing rights with all their neighbors as well. And it just was leading to constant conflict between Abram's family and Lot's family. I want you to notice the difference here, though. Between this test, which is almost the opposite of the last test. Yes, both tests had to do with the land. The land didn't seem to provide the first time. Now the land, there's plenty in the land. The first test in the last chapter was a test of famine. It's a test of scarcity, of lack, of want, of shortage. This test is a test of prosperity. A test of abundance, of great wealth. It's a test of Blessing. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, come on. How can blessing be a test? How can prosperity be a test? Look, if I was Abraham, if I was Abraham in this, if God blessed me like this, I know it would solve most of my problems. 
I could pay off my debt. I could provide for my family. I could send my kids to the school I really want to. Gosh, we could go on vacation and have a great old time together. If prosperity is a test, then sign me up. I know our hearts think that way at times. We forget, as Timothy said, that prosperity can lead to the love of prosperity, and it can become a snare. 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We see this in Lot, don't we? Why? For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Prosperity is most certainly a test, but we don't want to swing, by the way, to the other side of the pendulum swing and to see, well, prosperity then is automatically a sin. That godliness is essentially being poor and being in poverty. That's what godliness is. and We should just all take vows of poverty. We should redistribute wealth. If you've been blessed by God, if you have a, an abundance in your life, then you should feel guilty. You should just give it all away. A lot of people think that way. Only problem is that's not from Scripture. It's never been a sin to be wealthy. It's never been a sin to be poor. In fact, God is the one that makes people wealthy, makes people poor. First Samuel 2.7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. The Lord brings low and he exalts. God's the one that does it. Job learned that lesson, didn't he? The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. So neither prosperity or poverty is a sin. And prosperity or poverty should never be our goal for the Christian life. Our goal, whether we're in prosperity or poverty, should be contentment. It should be to trust the Lord. And that's the test here for Abram. Paul learned that test. Philippians 4.11. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. There's Abram. What's the secret then, Paul? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, the goal of this test is to bring Abram to the place where he trusts the Lord. He's content whether God provides a lot or a little in the land. He knows that the land is pointing them to the God that provides all of his needs. Well, how does Abram respond to this test of prosperity and the conflict it provides? Well, he tries to make peace with Lot, and we really see him trust the Lord in a beautiful way. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. Why? For we are kinsmen. Lot, we're brothers. We're family. Family shouldn't be acting like this. And you know what? They're not just family in the familial sense. They're family in the spiritual sense. I know Lot does a lot of stupid things in the book of Genesis. So do a lot of other believers, by the way. But Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.7 that Lot was a righteous man, greatly distressed by the sensual conflict of the wicked. Abram could be saying here, Lot, we're brothers in the Lord. We're brothers. We shouldn't be having this kind of strife. We shouldn't be doing these kinds of things. John later tells us we should be known as the people that love one another, not by this conflict. So what's Abram's solution? Verse 9. 
Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now what Abram does here is just astounding when you think about it. Abram had every right to make this decision himself. In fact, this is his decision to make. He's the older one, the wiser one, the one who's been leading his family this entire time. He's the patriarch. Plus, God gave the promises directly to him and to his offspring, not to Lot, his nephew. Yet Abram, in this incredible act of grace, treats Lot like an adopted son, like an heir to the very promises he's been given. We're family. We're brothers in the Lord. God sees us as equal in his eyes. So my inheritance in the Lord is your inheritance. You pick. What a contrast from his failure of faith in the last chapter. Putting his wife at risk. Expecting his wife to pay the cost so that he can be comfortable. So that he can meet his own needs. Now in this incredible act of faith, he's the first one to take the step to reconcile with Lot. He's the one to step out at great cost to himself to offer up the land, essentially surrendering the rights to his inheritance. How can he do this? Because Abram's living for more than the land. Abram's living by faith, not by sight. He knows that God will keep the promises no matter what. Lot does. You know, we make a really big deal about Abram offering up Isaac in Genesis 22, and we should. It's a glorious passage. And he offers up that seed promise in this incredible act. This is the offspring that you've promised me, Lord. This is yours. I'm offering it to you. But we forget it wasn't the first time Abram took a step of faith like that. It's here in this passage that Abram puts the land promise on the altar offering up everything, renouncing everything that God has promised to live by faith and to opt for the unseen. How does Lot respond to this incredible offer? Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes like Eve did in the Garden of Eden to look at the forbidden fruit. Lifted up his eyes and saw The Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. Listen, like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt, the place you would go in famine because it was so prosperous. In the direction of Zor. Lot, come on, brother. This is not the garden of Eden. Lot's losing perspective here. You see Abram gaining perspective, starting to see things by faith, and Lot's losing it. And Moses makes sure we know that. Look at the end of verse 10. He says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That's Moses waving a big red flag. This is a very, very bad decision. We know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the interesting part is this area that Lot chooses is right on the border of the promised land. Scholars even debate, is it really in the promised land in Canaan? Or is it right outside the promised land, right next to Sodom and Gomorrah? It's almost as if Lot moved as close as he possibly could to the world to get all of its benefits, but stay right in the promised land. 
One foot in the world, one foot in the church. We see Lot living by sight, blinded by the prosperity and the comfort and what the world offers him. He seems to be losing his touch with what God has given him. And it seems by his choice he's going to lose both the world and the blessing of God because he's choosing destruction. That's what it seems is going to happen. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the valley, the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Hope you can see so far in Genesis, that's always a bad sign. East of Eden, journeying east is journeying away from God, further into sin. Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Now, I completely believe that this is also part of the test of faith of Abram. Remember, this is the man that was supposed to be blessed by God, to be a blessing to every family in the world. He can't even keep his own family together. They can't dwell in harmony in the promised land, in God's place. Even after God blessed them, it's still falling apart. Now Abram sees the one he loved as a son, the one he guided and taught, walk away from his family, and it seems walk away from God. He sees Abram making the same foolish mistakes that he did. When he lived by sight. Gosh, I know as a father, if I were Abram, I would be so tempted to despair in this moment. I'm sure I would resort to any sinful mean necessary to get him to stay. Rebuke him, scare him, yell at him, whatever it took, right? Steal his camel, something, whatever it took to get him to stay. At the very least, I would take back my decision. I'd say, nope, you choose poorly. You made a terrible choice. Looks like I need to be the one to make this choice. I'm the one that does it. You're going to listen to what I say, and you're going to do that because I know what's better. Certainly, I'd be crying out to the Lord, Lord, why? Why? Why would you take away the one I love? Why would you take away my heir? The only heir, really, that Abram had, the only shot at a backup plan if all these promises fall through from God. He's my only chance for a future. I know many of you parents wrestle with this. You see your kids walking away from the Lord, struggling with sin, and you wonder why. Many of you parents even praying for your kids that they don't fall into this kind of life. We can learn from Abram here. What does Abram do? Verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley, and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. You notice Abram didn't freak out. He didn't take the offer to Lot back. He didn't forbid him to go. He didn't resort to sinful means like he did in the land of Egypt. No, he trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord even as Lot was going into exile outside of the promised land where God promised to bless Abram and his family. And Abram stayed. He stayed in the promised land because he was living by faith and not by sight. And he knew God would be with Lot. In fact, we find him later in the next few chapters praying for Lot, trusting the Lord even from a distance. Is this true for us as well? 
Do we live like this? Do we live more like Lot or more like Abram? Are we living with one foot in the world, one foot in the church, refusing to repent, holding on to that sin because we really think that God won't provide what we really need, or at least what we really want? Are we putting ourselves first, in our interests first in every possible situation, insisting that we have things our way, insisting that other people have to sacrifice for us, that other people make the hard choice, but never us? Are we living like Abram, eager to make peace, even when it costs him? Why? Because he's trusting in God. Kids, do you ever give your brother or sister the first choice? You know, which bowl of ice cream, or where to sit in the house or the car, or what game to play with, or toy to play with? Especially if you're the older and it seems like it's your right to choose first. Do you ever give up that right to serve your brothers and sisters? Now look, I know how this goes with kids, okay? Don't be the little sibling that goes home and said, see, pastor said give up your right, so I'm going to take it first. Listen for yourself. Sacrifice for others as Abram did. Put others' needs before your own. Husbands, wives, are you willing to swallow your pride? to break the stalemate in the argument and take that first step towards reconciliation, towards resolving the conflict, even when you're pretty sure that most of it is not your fault. Be careful how you calculate that, by the way. Are you willing to take that step? Husbands especially. Not only do you lead the family in worship, not only do you know all the questions and all the answers to the Bible, do you lead your family in sacrificing for them? In reconciling, in repentance, do you lead your family in the way that Abram does? I guess what I'm really asking all of us is do we trust the Lord enough to sacrifice for others? Even when peace, even when unity comes at great cost to ourselves? I am so thankful brothers and sisters, in many ways for this church. I feel when I preach this, it's a bit preaching to the choir. Because I see so many of you living and loving like Abram in this church right now. So many of you with this baptism debate, patiently walking with people, trusting the Lord, trusting the process that God would lead people to their convictions, seeking peace, fighting divisiveness, as Chad called us to from the very beginning. See, so many of you making incredible sacrifices to bring foster kids into your home, to bring non-believers into your home so that you can love them and care for them and, and share the gospel with them. And so many of you gearing up to make sacrifice after sacrifice to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And maybe some of you even listening now online that are there doing this work, living like Abram. I'm so thankful for God's work in you. And I pray that we wouldn't be like Lot we wouldn't lose sight of God's promises and start to live by sight, that we would live by faith. You know, Abram's a great example for us. But Abram is just a shadow of the ultimate peacemaker we see in Jesus Christ. He's the one who trusted God perfectly, who never had to repent, who laid his life on the altar as a living sacrifice, holy and unblemished, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the one, Philippians 2, 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, Jesus did all that for us. He's not just our example. He is. But he's also our substitute. He did that to make peace with us and God. And because of his work, we are now peacemakers. We can follow Abram as he follows Christ and looks to Christ in faith, living by faith. So we've seen Abram's repentance. We've seen his test. Let's look briefly at what motivated his faith. In the last few verses, verses 14 to 18. Verse 14, we see Abram's hope. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, and listen to this, lift up your eyes. Remember, Lot lifted up his eyes. He saw the possessions that he didn't have. He saw the prosperity of the world. Lot lifted up his eyes and lived by sight. Now God is telling Abram, lift up your eyes, Abram. Lift up your eyes and look. Look with the eyes of faith, Abram. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. In other words, look beyond Sodom. Look beyond the promised land that you're in even right now. Look past it all, Abram. Verse 15. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will give it to you. It's your inheritance even after all this. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Uncountable, in other words. So that if one could count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. I hope you notice we've heard this before. It's the same promise in the last chapter, before his failure. God is now taking those covenant promises he's made. He's reiterating them. He's renewing them. He's expanding the covenant promises to Abram. God is preaching the gospel here to Abram. Telling Abram that everything you dreamed for, everything you hoped for, will come true, Abram. I'm faithful. I will surely do it. Abram, your offspring, the Christ, he won't just be the heir to the promised land. He'll be the heir of the whole earth as it says in Romans 4.13. Abram, I know you're living by faith in the promised land, as Hebrews 11 says, as in a foreign land, living in tents, because you're looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder, its designer and builder is God. Abram, you're looking forward to a greater city, a greater land. I see that by the way you put the land on the altar here. It will come true, Abram. We are blessed to see the beginnings of that in Christ. And we can even look to Revelation 7 and see the ends of it. You don't have to turn there, but let me read Revelation 7, 9. John looked, and behold, a great multitude. There's Abram's offspring that no one could number. Every nation from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
That's what Abram's looking forward to. You know, it's pretty amazing. We'll see this pattern often in Genesis, where at the end of some conflict, at the end of some trial, it seems like God's people have lost. At the end of Genesis 13, it looks like Lot got the better share. He got the blessing. Abram was just left with the leftovers. But after the test, God graciously draws near to Abram to reveal the truth, to give him hope, to help him see by faith, telling Abram, look, my promises have never changed, Abram. I am still your God, and you are still my people. And those promises I gave you, they're even better than you can possibly imagine. Trust me. Continue in the faith. Live by faith. Looking forward to when I fulfill those promises in your greater offspring. And Abram did. Look at verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I love what one commentator says. He says, this verse summarizes almost Abram's entire life that we see in the book of Genesis. Wherever Abram goes, he lives in tents and builds altars. Isn't that beautiful? His entire life is about worshiping God wherever he goes and living like he's not home yet. He's trusting in the promises of a greater land, a greater offspring, the offspring we see in Christ. May we trust like Abraham did, looking to Christ in faith so that we can live by faith and not by sight. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible passage. Thank you for the work you've done in Abram's life. This incredible example of living by faith, even as an example of the shadow of what Jesus would do for us. Lord, let us see your covenant faithfulness in Abram's life. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you even when we have no evidence that we should trust you besides your word. Father, help us to trust you in times of plenty and prosperity, in times of of lack and shortage and difficulty. Lord, help us to trust you that you are the God that gives exactly what we need. And you take things away so that you can teach us and shape us and make us into the image of your son. Oh, Lord, help us trust you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.